Hi, I'm Paul Heaney, VP and Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. Welcome to the R&D 100 podcast, where we look at the science of innovation and what's new in research. And I'm Amy Kalnoskis, R&D World's Senior Editor. Paul and I are excited to bring you information on some of the breakthrough technologies affecting your world and hopefully entertain you a little. Well, I think we'll be able to do that pretty well, don't you, Amy? Yes. <laughs> if we're both together, something entertaining is bound to happen. Oh, for sure. So what's in store for our inaugural edition of the R&D 100 podcast? Well, Amy, today we are going to be talking about one of the R&D 100 winners from way back in 2016. 2016? I'm trying to remember what even happened in 2016. Wait, were we allowed to be near other people or, or go to restaurants? I certainly don't remember looking like Hannibal Lecter when I went to the grocery store, for sure. I, I doubt that. It, it does seem like a lifetime ago, though. So let's go back a little further, Amy, in your COVID-addled brain. What do you remember about the Ebola outbreak in 2014? Ebola. Well, I seem to recall that Patient Zero was a young boy from a small village in Guinea in West Africa, who I believe was infected by bats. It wasn't contained to that village because there was no such thing as contact tracing back then like we have now. Mm -hmm. And the public health infrastructure of that region is pretty poor. So what about what about Ebola as a disease? Do you have any, you know, without without doing some research, don't don't Google it while I'm, while we're talking, but any <laughs> anything come to mind? <laughs> wait, wait, Google's not where oh right, right, don't Google it. Okay, well, you know, up until COVID, I know that Ebola struck an unprecedented fear given, you know, how contagious and fatal it is. Mm -hmm. And wow, the symptoms seem like something from a pretty graphic horror movie, if I remember correctly. I think you're remembering pretty well. So let's go over it a little bit for you and for the audience. But Ebola is a pretty bad virus for humans and primates. Starts off with fever, sore throat, maybe some muscular aches. Pretty quickly, it progresses to vomiting, diarrhea, bad headaches, rashes, bleeding, both external and internal. And uh, before you know it, there goes your kidneys and your liver. So not a fun disease all in all. Shout. Uh, and then something else you kind of mentioned, you know, people who contract Ebola usually get it through bodily fluids. And then the mortality rate, like you were saying, it ranges from 25 up to 90%. So since it was discovered, which was in 1976, I think you kind of referred to that, the, uh, the original patient, there have been on the order of 20 different Ebola outbreaks. But in 2014, which I mentioned, there was a truly massive outbreak, an epidemic, and that was centered in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, which are three African countries kind of clustered on the, like the southwest corner of Africa's big western lobe, I guess you'd say. Okay, um, okay. It's, it's the part of the continent closest to South America, if that helps a little bit. Gotcha, gotcha. So anyway, this epidemic, which lasted from 2014 to 2016, ended up killing more than 11,000 people. By comparison, all of the outbreak deaths from Ebola from that beginning in 1976 up to 2012 totaled less than 1,600 deaths. Hmm. So this was like the big one as far as Ebola was concerned. Yeah. Um, now, you, you may remember in September and October of 2014, there were four confirmed cases of Ebola in the United States, and there was just you know, a huge media blow up about it. First one was a Liberian man who was visiting family in Dallas, and then two of the nurses who attended to him got it, and then a physician from Doctors Without Borders 
developed a case right after he returned to New York City. So there was talk of a travel ban uh, that was deemed not to be the right call. And eventually the situation in the U.S. did you know, right itself. You know what, Paul? I was just thinking, mm-hmm. I was working for a rather large semiconductor company at the, around that time, and okay. it was right down the road from the hospital where the Liberian man was eventually hospitalized. It was pretty scary. You know, my younger son was like freaked out about Ebola. He was probably, you know, five or six at the time. You know, that was happening. I was traveling for work. Whatever city I was going to, would be like, are you going to this city, you know, where there was an Ebola case? But no, no, I'm, I'm fine. It'll be all right. Yeah. Oh, tough. It was. But, you know, one of the things that the the U.S. State Department needed was a way to get infected citizens from overseas back to the U.S. safely. Sure. So, you know, how do you put someone who's contagious on a plane and then get them back to, you know, a biocontainment unit here in the U.S.? You know, like they've got one in Omaha at the, uh, the University of Nebraska Medical Center. There's one at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. But, you know, again, how do you, how do you get that person back without, you know, getting the whole plane sick? Whoa. I mean, yeah, you, you can't exactly put them on a passenger plane, you know, and, and even like a specialized military transport sort of thing, like a seaplane or something. It seems mm-hmm. like you'd be potentially exposing at least a handful of other people. Exactly. So now this is where Paul Allen comes in. Paul Allen. Wait, that's not the guy from Hollywood Squares, is it? No, no, no. no. <laughs> oh. No, the billionaire Paul right, Allen. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. Wasn't he besties with Bill Gates, with whom he started that, you know, little software company called Microsoft? I think he I'm became sure quite besties is the right word, but yeah, you're on, you're on the right track. Got it, got it. Okay. Okay, so Paul Allen's foundation has given something like $100 million to the fight against Ebola, and some of that money was used to solve this very problem. Here's MRI Global's Peter Anderson, senior engineer, explaining the problem. Yeah, so back in 2014, sort of at the height of the Ebola crisis in West Africa, the Department of State had identified the need to, you know, how do you get a medical personnel that has volunteered and is providing humanitarian support? How do you get them back to the United States for top-rate medical care in the event that they get sick themselves. And so they wanted to be able to provide a certain assurance that were they to go volunteer during that crisis, you know, Department of State would be able to get them back to the United States. So there's some complications in that. They've always made these like little bubbles that you can put a person inside of and kind of keep them isolated from somebody else. But being stuck in a little bubble like that for 16 plus hours as you're flying back from West Africa uh, isn't really feasible. And the other shortcoming on that is you really can't provide medical care to a person that's inside one of these small little bubbles. So what they needed was a system that you could place inside of an aircraft, keep the infected patient isolated from the rest of the aircraft, but also allow medical personnel to provide care to that person safely. And so kind of the the genesis behind that was creating the system that would allow for that to happen. Um, and so they also wanted to essentially be able to fly directly from, let's say, West Africa or any other disease outbreak area directly back to the United States. So they didn't want to have to stop in Germany to refuel or because there's just lots of political complications that um, can pop up from having to land in a foreign country. So they were designed for large aircraft, C-17s, 747 cargo planes, etc. Very cool. 
So this was MRI Global's idea? Well, no, it was actually started with Dr. William Walters at the State Department. It was kind of his brainchild from the beginning. And so he, along with funding from the Paul Allen Foundation, remember them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put out the RFP for this kind of a system. MRI Global actually developed and built the system. So let me step back and give a little bit of background on them. Mm -hmm. MRI Global is a research and development organization, and they primarily do contact research, uh, excuse me, contract research for government and commercial customers. And they focus on professional services in biology, chemistry, and engineering. Okay. One of their core areas is with infectious diseases, oh. chemical threats in the defense, national security and, and defense, and also global health areas. So here's Dean Gray, who is MRI Global's Director of Special Programs. Overall, we use science and technology for safer, healthier environment. That's our vision statement. And uh, we've got a group of engineers and biologists and chemists at different locations around the country that are just dedicated to this mission for our customers. So Dean told me MRI Global was already involved with the Department of Defense on the Ebola crisis when the State Department RFP came out. The effort that was going on internally was particularly, I'd say this was a really interesting part of it in that we had a parallel effort that was going on with the Department of Defense for the fabrication and staffing and mobilization deployment of our uh, diagnostic laboratories to West Africa. So we had one part of our organization and we were running these proposals in parallel. One part of our organization that was really devoted to that mission for Department of Defense. And at exactly the same time, we had the Department of State come to us and say, now we're going to be, as a country, we're going to be putting people, more people in harm's way to be able to lead these eradication efforts. And Department of Defense had the diagnostic requirements, the analysis and eradication, and then Department of State had kind of the transportation and evacuation requirement. And so we were working on both of these at the same time. And it was uh, really, I mean, my gosh, it was just a 24-7 effort for everybody involved in these proposals. They were a couple of, of what we would call internally strategic level proposals. So uh, they required sign-off from our CEO. Really, nobody in between could end up doing sign-off on these because they were such high profile and they carried a certain amount of risk with them. Really, it was, a, it was a very interesting time, not unlike some things that we're going through right now with this uh, current pandemic. Okay, okay, Paul, but I guess I'm just a little bit surprised that something like this didn't exist before, really? No, I mean, there, there really wasn't anything like it. Supposedly, the Germans had explored this similar idea where you would you know, essentially convert an entire aircraft into like a medical lab. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, you'd have a dedicated aircraft where... They would completely outfit the entire interior for that type of a mission. But the problem with that is that you're completely taking that aircraft offline for any other kind of use. Yeah, okay, that's not too good. But all right, gotcha though. So what did MRI Global end up building? Well, it's a pretty cool system, Amy. It's called the Containerized Biocontainment System, or CBCS for short. The system's a flyable medical transport unit, and it features full biocontainment. Each unit features three rooms, a patient treatment area for four patients and four caregivers, a room to safely put on and take off personal protective equipment, and a rest area for two caregivers. 
So pilots can, you know, cargo the CBCS in either private or a military aircraft and, and have confidence that they're safe from any biocontainments themselves. And the CBCS units can also be safely moved by truck. Wow, you're calling this a unit, but it sounds like a, like a small hospital. So how big are these things, Paul? Each CBCS is about eight feet tall, eight feet wide, and 44 feet long. And they're completely airworthy. Yes. The CBCS is designed actually to survive crash loads and rapid decompression per DOD's safe-to-fly standards. And the entire system can be rapidly decontaminated and then put right back into service immediately. Extensive domestic and international training exercises have proven that the CBCS can handle the ever-evolving global threat of this kind of disease outbreak. Well, that's comforting, but you know what? I'm really kind of fascinated by the idea you mentioned about the flying lab, where they just turn a whole airplane into a containment unit. Was there anything else done with that? No, but uh, according to Peter Anderson, there was another kind of system that was actually developed concurrently with the CBCS, Amy. That was actually used quite a bit during the Ebola crisis, and that was a system the Department of State had developed for use more in small Gulfstream aircraft. So essentially, it's like a tent that they would erect inside the plane. But it's, it's I mean, it's really just for one person. You know, you can, that person can sit up, you can move around a little bit, but that's about it. Okay. Um, you know, for the medical personnel, they can enter in the system, they can treat a person if they need to. But really, it was just designed for that one person at a time. And really, I think there's the hope that that person's not that sick, because it's really pretty difficult for the, you know, the medical staff to get in and out, as I said. Sure. So, you know, what they needed was a larger system where you could transport more infected patients and then also have more medical personnel in the system with them. And so that's really where the CBCS came into play. So here's Peter Anderson again. Yeah, so the the CBCS is this unique combination of like a biocontainment system, but it also has to be airworthy. So what that means is it has to be designed for crash loads and rapid decompression events. So if like the cargo hold of the aircraft lost um, pressure, you know, typically you're going to have all this pressure build up inside the CBCS. And so you have to be able to design for that rapid um, pressure buildup. So marrying those two sort of principles together was quite unique and quite challenging. So we really had to engage one, um, DOD, for all of their sort of, we call it safe to fly airworthiness standards. Um, they're you know very extensive on what they require to actually place on their aircraft. Two was the medical personnel um, through Department of State that would actually be using this. And so like what they needed from a biocontainment and medical safety uh, standpoint, uh, and so, and then where MRI came into play was actual engineering. And so we had a team of structural design engineers, computational fluid dynamics engineers to model airflow and pressure buildups, um, electrical engineering, and then just standard mechanical uh, engineering design. So our team was MRI Global, our primary subcontractor who's HHI. Um, they're located out in Ogden, Utah, and they're top-rate, large-scale fabrication experts, and then direct interactions with Department of State and Department of Defense. One of the amazing things I discovered about this whole project is that they were developing it on an extremely tight time frame. 
They were constantly battling what they could identify as the best technical solution versus literally, you know, what could they obtain in the time frame that they were working within? So a lot of times we would identify, you know, a particular piece of technology, whether it's a battery, a seat, uh, a filter, and we would go down the road of procurement and it would be a five month lead time, six month lead time. So it just didn't work for us. And so we'd have to switch gears and identify an alternative solution. We also had to balance these airworthy requirements that were defined by DOD with the biocontainment solutions, which typically would lead us down to like a completely custom design system. So I think a, a good example of this would be the doors. Uh, the doors have to be capable of creating an airtight seal. So, you know, that's nothing new. There's all kinds of standard laboratory biocontainment doors that you can buy, but none of them are designed for these significant crash loads or rapid decompression events. So we ended up completely from scratch designing and building the containment doors. A major sort of uh, risk that we took was we put in an epoxy coating on the inside of the CBCS. And so what this was designed to do was provide a coating that could be easily decontaminated. You don't want any crevices or creases or really places for any disease to, to hang out, essentially. And so this coating that we identified would provide sort of a flexible base, but also provide a surface that could be easily decontaminated. So we got it all installed, looked great. Um, and a couple of days later, we noticed that it was starting to bubble in a few areas. And so we had to backtrack and determine that the mixture of the epoxy as it was being applied was just enough off that we essentially deemed that the base coat wasn't acceptable. And so we had to go in and rip out the entire epoxy coating system, which I think gave us all nightmares to this day. Um, it was a pretty significant effort, but we reinstalled it and it's been in place on the CBCS for five plus years and multiple flights and, you know, forklifts and crane lifts and everything. And so it's, it's held up great. So it's, we were glad that we stuck with that process and, and kind of redid that. Dean also spoke about the bubbling epoxy story and having them take it down to bare metal and then redo it. I remember when this happened and it wasn't really a question of if we were going to do it. It was just how quickly we could do it to be able to do it right for the long term. And while Peter mentioned that to this day, it probably causes him some nightmares. It also to this day with Department of State, when we talk to their leadership, they remember that event as well as a time when they decided that they picked the right team to be able to develop that for the country. Because it was, it was that, that was a, that was a leadership moment. It was a decision point of, of where you could do something at 99% or you could do something at hundred percent the way it needed to be done. And it was never a question in our minds that it wasn't going to, it always was going to be at that 100% level to be able to deliver this. It's such a critical need. And I really got to congratulate the team on that. They did a great job on it. Wait, how long did all of this take? I mean, it sounds like a lot, but you said it had to be in a pretty tight time frame, right? Yes, Amy. That is really another 
impressive angle to look at on this whole project. From the day they got the contract to the day they delivered was 191 days. So to design, fabricate, and test a system of this magnitude, I mean, that is, in my head, that's unbelievably quick. Yeah, and that's an understatement. I mean, that's incredible. Wait, is there just one CBCS, Paul, or or like several? I mean, it's not like you can have like a big manufacturing line spitting these things out, right? Correct. So the initial order was just for two units, and then two more were built back in 2019. So there's a total of four of them out there in the world right now. Uh, They run about $2 million a piece, and they generally operate them on 747s, but they're currently exploring you know some different versions of the cbcs so there may be a smaller system down the road that could fit on a c-130 you know just to provide some flexibility on where it can land uh, or maybe systems that are more for dedicated ground use only so it's going to be interesting in the coming years to see what transpires yeah with the current models they've gone on mock missions over to west africa and back and then they've also done i thought this was interesting some mock training missions that would simulate a group of volunteers that had come back to the United States, then dispersed back to their homes before starting to show, you know, signs of illness. So that that mission I, you know, was explaining would be taking the CBCS around to different sort of regional hospitals. You know, there they pick a patient up, transport him back to a facility that's rated for caring for the patient with a more infectious disease, you know, like an Ebola. Oh, okay. Now I remember from our own website, uh, that's www.rdworldonline.com for our listeners, that it had an early starring role in the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Your memory is very good, Amy. Well, for once. But I, I recall, I think they used it to bring back some Americans from that cruise ship that was stuck off the coast. And that was the coast of Japan, right? Uh, that was the Diamond Princess? Yes. Yes, it was uh, the one that was stuck off the coast of Tokyo for weeks, and then uh, eventually it docked in uh, nearby Yokohama. There were more than 300 U.S. citizens and family members who were evacuated, and after they disembarked, they were taken to bases and then transported to Haneda Airport, where they boarded a plane bound for California. But there were 14 passengers of those 300 who had earlier tested positive for COVID-19. So they went into the CBCS units, which were also on the plane. And there they were able to make the flight home while remaining isolated from the remaining passengers. So, I mean, the design worked perfectly. Oh, sounds like it. All right, Paul, can we talk a little bit bigger picture here? Of course, go ahead. All right, so, well, we write so much about invention and innovation, which are obviously at the forefront of the R&D 100 Awards too. But how does innovation happen on a big multidisciplinary team like at MRI Global? I mean, I think they'd have nightmares just trying to get all these different components just mm-hmm. right. I mean, we can hardly get projects coordinated on Zoom. Did you talk to Peter or Dean about any of that? Uh, actually, we did cover that a little bit, at least in relation to the CBCS. So, so here's what Peter told me. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm very practical. So I like things that work already. So it's kind of like this, it's this bouncing act of determining when you should just use a system that works. Proven design, proven concept. So the CBCS is a good example of this, where a lot of the components that we put onto it were just standard components that you can buy. We knew they worked. We didn't have to do anything to them. um, And it just went on from there. But 
like I talked about with the, the doors, you know, we, we quickly determined that any standard component's not going to work for that. So, and when you kind of meet that crossroad, that's when I think you, you see sort of true innovation is when the requirements force you, in a better lack of words, to, to kind of come up with new solutions. Um, and really, again, like as far as fostering that type of environment, I think it's important that your team is just all on board with the same goal in mind. You know, it's, it's okay to have outside of the box ideas, but the end goal has to be the same for everybody. And, and I think it, at MRI, we're, we're absolutely, you know, focused on um, providing, you know, global support um, and focused on that mission. So. And here's Dean. There was a dedication to this product and a, a dedication and excitement about the mission that it supports. And the, there was a, a, a selflessness from the team through this project that ended up, it was never about credit. It was always about the product and it was about fulfilling the goals of the, of the project for the customer and in this, in a time of need. And that's where, you know, when you get the right team together and if you can remove uh, barriers and remove bureaucracy and kind of protect that team and make sure that there isn't going to be any other internal or external pressures on them to have to be diverted from that primary goal, then really some incredible things can, can happen. And, and I think you get the right uh, complementary personalities of folks that like to think a little bit further out of bounds with what you know Peter described as also being the very practical, but having a mutual respect among some of the disciplines that were involved, uh, it can really make make something make something incredible. And in that case, I think this this qualified for that. That is very cool. Anything else you learned from talking to them? Uh, really, the only other thing I'd say is that, you know, and I mentioned before, the funding came from the Paul G. Allen Ebola Foundation. And, you know, from what they told me, it really wouldn't have happened without the funding, that that public-private partnership that was put together to make it happen. Um, it was the Ebola eradication efforts that really spurred the development on, and you know, in the beginning. But the thought was always towards what's next, Amy. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the goal was to have this sort of a system in place that was robust enough and, and future-proof enough for, for what was next. And then, you know, using it in the COVID-19 pandemic was, you know, I would say, sort of a proof of concept that it works and it's needed. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, and Dean also told me that he hopes that, that this changes the calculus or, or the thinking behind preparedness, not just for, um, you know, building one of these and having it around in strategic locations for when, not if, um, you know, something like this happens again, because you really need something like this or when you need something like this. I mean, you need it like right away and you need it really badly. Yeah, well, I hope we don't need it again, but it's good to know it's there, right? Yes, for sure. Hey, awesome. This has been a lot of fun, Paul. And thanks for taking us through the whole journey and the story of the CBCS. It's been a great a really interesting ride. And you know what? Our feet were on the ground and not in the air. This is true. Um, thanks so much for co-hosting with me, Amy. It's been a joy, especially uh, in these times where we can't actually be in the 
same room together very much. So at least we can podcast together. Yeah, even across time zones. Hey, well, if you're a past R&D 100 winner and you have an interesting story to tell, let's talk. Please email us the details at researchdevelopment at wtwhmedia.com. We'd love to feature you on a future R&D 100 podcast. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at eeworld underscore Amy, that's A-I-M-E-E, and at WTWH underscore Paul Heaney. Well, until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kalnoskis over here. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>